Hi, everyone. I'm Frieza Balstoon. And I'm Kay Jabelli, and this is Monopoly Attack. On the last episode of Monopoly Attack, we looked at the Microsoft case, or cases, and how they have been a significant precedent in the area of fair platform access conditions and product integration theories of foreclosure in the digital economy and the enforcement of abuse prohibitions under particularly Article 102, but also obviously influential internationally in terms of how to assess this kind of conduct when it comes to tech products. And it's been a while now since those uh, cases were brought, those complaints and those commitments that uh, Microsoft adopted. And they have changed the way Microsoft behaved. And it's a question that we can look at to see whether the remedies were effective. And also, what has Microsoft's conduct been since these cases? And what role has it played in the development of competition policy most recently? So let's uh, dive in and take a look. What do you say, Frizo? Yeah, let's go. Let's um, let's start with that 2004 decision about Windows Media Player and interoperability information. So, um, first of all, the decommission ordered Microsoft to offer a version of its Windows operating system, but without the integrated media player, Windows' own media player, of course. Now, I'll preface this by saying that this remedy is not exactly considered a success, and when we go through this, you might already be able to guess why. Um, well, first of all, there wasn't anything in the order about the price of this uh, Windows version with media player and without media player. So what Microsoft did was, of course, offer them both at the same price, which meant that, well, there just wasn't really an incentive for either the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, or consumers directly to uh, buy this sort of feature-free version, or at least Mm version with lesser features of the Windows XP operating system. Um, All in all, I think there were no more than 2,000 sales in total. Um, I heard this joke that um, one of the lawyers against Microsoft was uh, was one of the, the only the only purchasers of that software, really. And I guess, you know, lawyers against Microsoft, my number almost to 2000. So that can make sense. But um, do you see any other reasons that that this remedy didn't really work out? Well, yeah, I think that the commission there was under the impression that by forcing a kind of a space for competition and choice between the client uh, media streaming uh, software providers, you know, competing with uh, each other and with Microsoft to get exclusive placement on the operating system via the OEMs. Uh, the idea was that, well, you know, if real uh, media player or, or Apple QuickTime or something wanted enough, if that placement was worth it, then they would have gone and offered those OEMs uh, some money for those OEMs to take the WMP free version, the version of Windows without the Windows Media Player, the Windows XPN, that they would have gotten the OEMs to buy that version and then install their streaming client exclusively instead. 
but I guess the facts were different than what uh, the commission had thought, that this wasn't actually a market that was worthwhile to OEMs or to, to the competing streaming client providers, that they weren't willing to or weren't able to find an agreement that would be worthwhile. And that's why ultimately there wasn't a lot of demand uh, for this version that could be mm-hmm. somewhat, you know, have the client, yeah. the streaming client monetizable in a way. On the other hand, how important are streaming clients anyway, Frizo? I mean, do you have a streaming client uh, on your PC these days? Well, I guess I use VLC Media Player. Um, I think most people these days probably do their streaming media via online uh, services, like through their browser uh, directly. I suppose some people have a, a Netflix or a Spotify, which is a you know a client that does uh, streaming. But, it, but in a very different way, you know, those are both subscription-based services, very different than the kind of uh, streaming clients that were at issue in, in this case. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the maturity and the evolution of that market definitely played a role. Also, the, the maturity of or the sophistication of, of users at that point, I think at the point of the decision, we didn't see a lot of users actually downloading alternative uh, media players. But afterwards, uh, you know, when this whole Internet thing had been around for a bit longer and people started understanding how to work with an operating system, um, there was a real uptick in media players downloaded in addition to Windows. Um, so that also you know, brought the market to a different place. Yeah, indeed. Faster connection speeds uh, and sort of more time for users to learn these uh, different software applications. And as well, I suppose streaming became less um, important as as computer hardware and uh, became stronger as computer hardware became faster and had more storage space. Downloading uh, content more permanently probably isn't as much of a concern anymore. You don't worry about having MP3s uh, on your PC. Uh, the amount of space that they would take up is more marginal. You don't need to stream the content uh, to save hard drive space anymore, so to say. So, uh, you know, as the technology evolved, as uh, other substitutes to streaming became more viable due to that evolution. And then also there's the way that the sort of demand that consumers had, you know, it's not strictly for a client streaming a piece of software, it's to listen to something. And they were doing it in a different way. There were hardware solutions, uh, iPods and such, where you might not have an internet connection and you would want to listen to something on the go. So digital um, media became more mobile, which I suppose made uh, downloading uh, more interesting, at at least during that time period. Of course, now we're back (laughs) even with mobile and streaming uh, together. Uh, But this particular kind of desktop streaming of media software is a bit anachronistic. It's a bit uh, uh, of its moment, but but not necessarily a long-term market mm. as such. The, the market got redefined in a way, and, and user demand was met through different substitutes. Yeah, yeah. So this market definitely changed, but uh, the remedy can hardly be credited for that. Now, I think from an enforcement perspective, the second remedy about interoperability information was was even more interesting because uh, now what it did was that the, the commission decision ordered Microsoft to disclose within 120 days complete and accurate information uh, that would allow those rival vendors to interoperate with Windows and have their workgroup server OS, the product in question there, interoperate. So that information that they needed, this interoperability information, would have to be made available on front terms. But that wasn't immediately the 
case or not immediately or after 120 days. Um, I believe first uh, Microsoft did make the information available, but not on um, on fair and reasonable terms. So it was imposed a penalty of 1.5 million per day. The next problem was that the information was given, but it wasn't fully accurate. So the commission upped that penalty payment to 3 million per day. So all in all, the um, now Microsoft ended up paying over a billion euros in penalty payments until it fully uh, fully disclosed that information. So especially if you compare that with the original uh, 500 million fine, I mean most of most of the monetary payment, at least in this in this saga, came from penalties rather than the fine in itself, which is uh, which is interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's, that's kind of remarkable in terms of sort of not complying or dragging feet or just you know avoiding and and saying, well, the fine is worth it for me to have this kind of continued delay of uh, my competitors Mm. being able to benefit from the same network effects. Uh, It is quite a stark example compared to some of the stuff we see these days. Um, I think in in the Netherlands, the maximum fine is like uh, 50 million that was reached recently before. It's it's quite a different uh, level when it's enforced by the commission. I think also at that point, uh, Microsoft was still in a bit of a different mindset, very antagonistic uh, against the commission and anything that was ordered. It it later changed on that point, but that's something uh, we'll get into later in this episode. Yeah, and wonder. I would wonder to what extent is this, uh, you know, not complete non-compliance, or was there some compliance, but the commission said, well, that's not compliant enough. Mm. I think. On the on the fine for the browsers, that was just kind of a mistake, so to say, where they accidentally didn't include the choice screen. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to uh, the FRAND uh, access to interoperability information for the workgroup server operating systems, I think there is there was a bit more of a fight over well, you know, are they complying or not? Which portents, uh, you know, some definitely interesting discussions ahead on the DMA where there are similar uh, interoperability and access requirements that are going to be imposed on uh, designated gatekeepers. Right. And like, yeah, like you say, it's it's not exactly easy for all. We have fairly vague terms, fair, reasonable, non-discriminatory. Uh, those can all, well, need some interpretation. And of course, this interoperability information, I assume, was, was quite a big chunk. You had to decide what was exactly essential for those competitors to be able to interoperate and what was not. So, yeah, internally, I mean, it requires uh, a bit of a compliance team and effort to, to really make that, um, well, to comply with that remedy. On the choice screen, yeah, I, th- I wonder whether the market has shifted as well because of the remedy or, or not so much. I think, you know, even though there was that brief period where they didn't comply with the remedy, uh, overall, I think a lot of people, similar to streaming media clients, people got used to downloading stuff. A lot of people were just downloading, whether it's uh, Firefox or Chrome or Opera. And the user's inertia wasn't quite the massive barrier um, that it would have appeared. I think, uh, you know, it's even gotten to the point where Chrome became so popular uh, that even Internet Explorer's sort of code base has moved to the Chrome rendering engine uh, just to make sure that it's more compatible. So the network effects, uh, in essence, accumulating to Chrome got to the point where Microsoft didn't want to continue its own independent browser rendering technology anymore. 
Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting development. Um, also, it's sort of uh, this, this whole chrome and chromium evolution kind of validates, especially the US case, but also a part of this EU case that said, look, these, these browsers where choice is now restricted, those are or could develop into middleware. Those could not only uh, be a complement to the operating system, but could in the long term substitute for it, essentially um, competed, competed away in, in this disruptive sense. Um, and at the time, it was difficult to say whether that was going to happen. I mean, it definitely seemed like um, an option. But now we, we have seen it happen because um, Google used Chrome, its uh, browser, as the basis for its OS on which it runs web apps. Um, and it uses it in its uh, tablets, etc. So, so its browser did become an operating system, although it's only used on tablets and sort of light computers, um, not entirely a competitor, well, or not a very close competitor to Windows, but definitely in that same space. On the other hand, a capable browser like Chrome able to use web apps is hitting at the very heart of Microsoft's enterprise software suite. So with the Google Docs and Google Sheets and such, you're going at uh, Microsoft's margins right there on there previously, you know, standalone, you had to buy and download the software uh, and install it on your operating system. Well, now you can access it through a browser, any browser, but still it, browsers are proving to be a kind of uh, middleware platform that uh, enables customers to circumvent the requirements of an mm. operating system. Yeah. And I mean, this, this whole browser market has shifted so much since the interesting question is, I mean, was that the remedy or was that sort of external developments? Um, and there's some good research on this, looking at, for example, how Internet Explorer and competing browsers evolved in Europe versus how it evolved, for example, in the US where there was no browser choice screen remedy. And we can see that they, they didn't evolve all that differently. So which would mean that even though there's some, uh, some of Internet Explorer's decline, probably due to this browser choice screen and, you know, of course, the uptick in Chrome that comes with that, its impact will have, in any case, been fairly limited. It was, again, more of a situation where, where the market evolved on its own rather than the remedy. The remedy might have facilitated a little bit, um, but definitely not was, was the big driver of that change. Yeah, I want to see the study on how much human time has been wasted on choice screens as well. As a counterpoint, <laughs> is it is it worth the the marginal increase in competition that appears to have uh, been the the result in this case? But uh, that's just a funny uh, aside. But yeah, no, I, I think <laughs> it, it is hard to hard to tell what, what how effective they they these remedies have been as such. Uh, Microsoft did nevertheless stay under scrutiny. Um, in Brussels, uh, their strong market position and presence led to in-depth reviews of, of several acquisitions that they did. They purchased uh, Skype, they purchased LinkedIn, uh, they purchased Nokia uh, assets when they were trying to increase their presence in the smartphone uh, space. Um, in the Microsoft Skype case, the commission assessed whether Microsoft would degrade interoperability with other communication services or technologically tie the operating system with to the Skype client in ways similar to uh, wh what the commission had investigated in these browser and Windows Media Player cases. Uh, similarly, in Microsoft LinkedIn, the commission reviewing that acquisition looked at whether Microsoft would have the ability and incentive to leverage its uh, operating system market power or its enterprise productivity software uh, suite market power into the professional social network or online uh, recruitment service markets. And this ended up with a commitment 
not to pre-install LinkedIn in Windows, not quite to the extent of uh, requiring a choice screen for professional social networks, but but at least not pre-installing the software um, onto computers. Though, you know, perhaps a more tightly integrated um, professional social network software with a with a enterprise suite could be something that consumers are missing out on. I wonder if, you know, the, ex- the extent to which there were efficiencies there that have been sort of put on hold, perhaps, mm-hmm. because Microsoft doesn't want to uh, risk further investigation. But uh, still, yeah, we see these same theories popping up in, in Microsoft cases. And then obviously, of course, in, in, in these other big tech cases that are so prevalent today. Yeah, yeah, it is remarkable how how interoperability and technical integration or tying keeps keeps haunting Microsoft. Now, of course, it also has itself to thank for that because we keep seeing behavior that's really reminiscent of those past infringements, sort of repeats the same tricks. It feels like every other week I have to convince uh, my Windows operating system that no, I don't want to make Internet Explorer or what is now Edge my default browser. And when I'm using Chrome, for example, then that, that is indeed an active choice and that they're not going to convince me that their Microsoft Edge is safer, faster or whatever. So, I mean, even this, this exact conduct of, of pushing their own browser within their operating system is sort of a, a never-ending story. Although, I guess the, the concern around that has grown less big since the market has matured so much and users are more sophisticated. Uh, it doesn't take a lot for me to, to switch default browsers, etc. Yeah, I think people are definitely more comfortable with it. And I think Microsoft also has learned to be a better player in the sort of regulatory game, a a better participant in the market, at least in terms of their perception and their way of collaborating and cooperating with governments that are doing these kinds of investigations. Uh, They changed their posture quite a bit. I mean, I think their their legal counsel, Brad Smith, has talked about the six levels of antitrust hell and how in, you know, stage one, when you're facing an antitrust infringement and you're a big, uh, successful tech company, oftentimes founder-owned, founder-led, you know, you've built something, you've created something, and now all of a sudden you have government coming in and your response is, well, government doesn't understand the technology, but... Those rules keep coming. So then you sort of move to thinking that, well, maybe they just don't appreciate all the good things that we do and we can explain it to them in a way that they'll understand and and that'll get them off our backs. That oftentimes still doesn't work. So you say, well, okay, they're going to enforce, but they're wrong. So we'll win in court. And uh, when that doesn't work and you're in stage four, uh, you know, the court case isn't looking good. And you think, well, maybe we can settle this thing without having to do anything too painful, which, you know, you find out what is expected and it ends up being a little bit more painful than you were anticipating. And then you get to stage five and it's, well, I guess this is going to be painful after all, but you do it. And then it's stage six uh, where you realize there is life after all at the end of this. And maybe it's not a bad life. That's, you know, Brad Smith's uh, summary of the six Mm. levels of antitrust hell. And I think the different companies are at different stages, but Microsoft says and acts in many ways as if they are in stage six, um, that, you know, there are restrictions on what they can do, but this can present an opportunity where they can help shape the regulatory landscape that's going to be applying to everyone else. Instead of fighting it and potentially um, missing out on opportunities there. I think it's a bit of a debate. You know, would uh, Windows Mobile have been uh, uh, more successful if Microsoft wasn't facing these antitrust issues? I think 
in some respects, that's a nice narrative to, to paint to say, well, antitrust enforcement was effective. That's why Google and, and Facebook and all them were able to, to pop up. But for me, the timing of it and, you know, the impacts, the scope of the antitrust investigations, I think on the surface, it can be an appealing narrative. But in, in reality, I think maybe the extent to which the executives were kind of like distracted by the, the, the cases and Microsoft had already gotten very fat in a way, maybe mm-hmm. they weren't acting much like a challenger as much pushing the boundaries of innovation, maybe it's a little bit more of that than necessarily a story of, well, antitrust enforcement itself and the remedies themselves were the reason for these new Web 2.0 companies to rise. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's there's this theory that I think has something to it. I think Tim Wu calls it the, the policeman at the elbow. So it's not those very specific remedies themselves that really shifted this market that changed a lot for Microsoft, but rather the idea that they had to sort of watch their steps that they, in making product decisions, had to sort of think, okay, are we not anti-competitively pushing someone out of the market by doing this? And this made them perhaps overcompensate, become too cautious um, or whatnot, which is also not great. You know, you want to get that balance right. Um, but that's, it's like he said, almost that distraction or at least that uh, realization that, you know, there is a regulator watching over you that sort of prompted a change in how the company positioned itself in the markets. But like you say, maybe that positioning was all already a long time coming. Um, but the Windows Mobile example is interesting, though, because Bill Gates himself has alleged that without all this, uh, all these Microsoft cases and the, the remedy saga afterwards, Windows Mobile would have beaten Android. Now, I think that's a bit of a bold statement. Um, so, of course, impossible to test at this point. So you can sort of um, allege it without uh, being punished by reality. But yeah, if the, the leadership of a company does think it had such an impact, I mean, there's still at least something there, although it's it's probably a bit exaggerated in that specific statement. Yeah, I mean, on Android, the, to me, the reason Android won, because it was a different business model. Mm. It was monetizing through tying of the Google ad-supported services. It wasn't trying to charge OEMs. So when OEMs were facing with a free operating system, effectively, uh, no cost to them yeah. and uh, and and one that they had to pay microsoft for <laughs> that was an easy that was an easy decision um and you know in terms of the policeman at the elbow uh i, I wonder how much their conduct was really uh, impacted if they were still being fined for these breaches of the commitments like it's like okay well it makes for a nice story, though. It definitely makes for a nice story. But and in terms of breaches of the commitments and other conduct, those weren't the only uh, uh, complaints and, and, and investigations. There, there continue to be new ones. Now, I think we talked about this a little bit in our uh, antitrust omnibus episode uh, in season one. Uh, but there was, of course, a big case in uh, Russia by Kaspersky over, uh, again, an alleged abuse of dominance that was the bundling of the operating system with the Microsoft security software. Uh, and, and obviously Kaspersky wanted to get opportunities to put their security software on PCs. And there were certain access conditions that were imposed in that case as well to give uh, Kaspersky the level of interoperability information they would need to provide an equivalent level of uh, security software, which is a little bit tricky. And and there have been questions of the security of Microsoft services. And anytime a company needs to give access 
uh, to its technology to a rival, there's a risk that that can be abused, that uh, access will give certain insights that will make the hardware or software a bit vulnerable. Um, that that's definitely one of the points that are made in the context of the DMA and the interoperability and access conditions that are provided there. So, you know, th- that came up in that case as well. Again, Microsoft uh, serving as, a, as an example or early um, mover in, in this kind of competition policy and, and the various factors that need to be considered when doing these kind of actions, interventions. Right. Yeah. And similar complaints uh, from from Slack, the workplace uh, productivity software company was bought by Salesforce uh, at one point and then became a bit more antagonistic. It even teased uh, Microsoft with this letter um, when Microsoft was coming up with its own uh, workplace cooperation products um, saying basically, well, welcome to the game. Uh, We welcome the competition. But they didn't for a very long time because in 2020, about four years after that um, sort of just the letter, it launched a complaint against Microsoft again for for tying tying its Teams product into its um, well into its whole Office productivity suite, force installing it for millions, blocking the removal, uh, sort of similarly to Windows Media Player, and uh, allegedly also hiding the true cost to enterprise customers. Of course, if you get a an operating system loaded with features, uh, you can't really say what the cost of Teams specifically is. While for Slack, they they do work with uh, with subscriptions and the like, so it has, that cost is a lot more real to customers, and and that's sort of difficulty of comparing them with and then falsify the the competition. So that's another case that, to my knowledge, uh, Commission hasn't been looking too closely at. It has been mentioned in, for example, support studies of the Digital Markets Act, um, but definitely no no official investigation yet, uh, let alone a statement of objections. And, and that's even though with this new Windows 11 update that uh, Teams uh, software is now going to be kind of force upgraded for users as well. And again, you get into this question of, well, is this a integration that is pro-consumer or is this a foreclosure of a rival that is ultimately against the interests of consumers? There's also similar complaints in the cloud space with uh, Microsoft's Azure and the software that is available on that, whether you can bring your own software to the Microsoft cloud, whether you can easily transfer over your data and move to another service, whether there is a bundling of different uh, software with the cloud. Um, Again, something that has also been brought up in the DMA impact assessment and one of the reasons behind including cloud services as a core platform service Mm. of the DMA. Yeah, I think maybe the more even more interesting or future-facing part is is Microsoft not only being the target of these antitrust complaints, but becoming a, a complainant itself, or at least becoming a player, let's say, in the complainant space. Um, you know, its its fellow tech giants get a lot of complaints, be it Apple uh, around their App Store, uh, Google around its search engine, and and often Microsoft has sort of an interest in these fights, uh, perhaps because it has its own competing search engine, Bing, you know, competitor to Google, perhaps because it has its app store, of course, not on mobile because Windows Mobile wasn't exactly a success and has been discontinued. But on PCs, uh, obviously, it has its app store. And those interests sort of get a reflection in in the role it plays in those uh, antitrust battles that are now being waged against its rivals. 
There's a bunch of them, but maybe I'll start with my favorite one, which is around app stores, as you know. Um, that's why I really picked up on sort of this new role for Microsoft when I was going through the, the filings in the Epic case. So the, the case around Epic's complaint uh, against Apple for its monopolistic conduct in its app store, where it's throughout Epic as it was using this alternative payment system. Um, so there, in a, buried in one of these filings, was a statement by uh, Kevin Gamble, the general manager of uh, Microsoft Gaming Developer Experiences, saying, yeah, what Apple did here, banning not only uh, Epic's Fortnite, but also uh, its Unreal Engine, um, well, that, that goes too far because this technology is critical not only for Epic itself, but for a lot of developers relying on it. Um, and so this should be blocked. And the judge did indeed uh, tell Apple to uh, keep supporting Unreal Engine, even though it didn't put Fortnite back onto the App Store. So so that was that was interesting first shot in that App Store game for Microsoft, but it's only gotten um, gone further from there, for, uh, but always a bit, you know, hidden, for example, in feedback on the Digital Markets Act that the European Commission um, solicited. They, they subtly raised the, the question, you know, whether Apple is managing its app store in a truly free and fair way. Uh, so it's saying that they've been frustrated by Apple's refusal to allow competing uh, game subscription services because Microsoft has, of course, the Xbox and their subscription service there, the Xbox Game Pass. Uh, which is cloud-based, uh, and there's a ban on those in the App Store, uh, so they're not very happy with that. It's sort of blocking them from truly entering this this mobile segment. Um, what do you think about this this whole App Store fight, Kay? I think it's interesting on the one hand that they are pushing for this. Obviously, it's to the detriment of their competitors, and they, as an operating system, have been uh, for a long time, plagued with comparisons that they are less secure for being more open, that there are more bugs and viruses on the Windows ecosystem than there are on Apple's ecosystem, for example. And that was a big selling point of Apple. And that uh, the idea that the regulatory intervention could reduce that differentiation, uh, I think is interesting. That the recent developments on streaming uh, technology also kind of show how if there is enough pressure in one direction, if there is enough market opportunity that technology can work around even quite uh, serious bottlenecks, so to say. And I think that's something that regulators need to keep in mind because when markets can change, when technology can evolve and the tr traditional concept of um, market power attracting entry is still very much alive. And, you know, we see it even in, in something like app stores, at least when it comes to these uh, game streaming services. So it is a bit cynical when, you know, they have adopted these uh, 10 app store principles that they say that they will do for their Microsoft app store on the PC, but then they won't extend that, for example, to Xbox because in Xbox, you know, they're, they're one of the market leaders. They don't want to have those same obligations apply to them, but they do it in areas where they can see it play as an advantage against their competitors. You know, I, I personally don't like that. I think if you're an advocate for a particular rule, you should be willing to believe that rule is right for all market participants yeah. in general. 
Yeah, although I, I think there, there's something of a distinction to be made because indeed they have these principles to promote choice, fairness, etc. Uh, in, in app stores and they apply those to their Microsoft store on desktop operating systems within Windows where they charge, for example, 12% on PC game sales versus Apple's 30%. You're right that that doesn't apply to their Xbox game store. But the judge in, in Epic vs. Apple also sort of went into this, like, can we really compare this gaming market with the mobile phone market and decided that that's not a completely fair comparison because in gaming, the hardware, the, the Xbox or the PlayStation is sold below cost or at most at cost. And it is subsidized, cross-subsidized in part from uh, game sales. While with a phone, the, the iPhone is sold greatly above cost. Uh, so there's no real need for that cross-subsidization from, from app store sales, for example. That is true in terms of uh, there is a bit of a distinction there. But uh, yeah, I, I still I still see it a little bit cynically. And perhaps that's also influenced by their whole dispute on mm. publishers' uh, rights and giving payments to publishers for using links to those publishers in a search engine, where they've come out very strongly in favor of this News Corp proposal in Australia, or which is actually now the law, basically, to make uh, search engines and social media platforms pay for links, a kind of a link tax and Microsoft came out and said, well, yeah, we would be happy to do this. Of course, uh, we think these tech companies should pay for news. And we would be happy to send these publishers money and traffic if they were to you know, use uh, Bing, if, if Google were to withdraw from the Australian market. And, and of course, again, I think that's kind of a cynical thing to do. Uh, I think it's a bad rule for, for the Internet generally to have to pay for links. And as we've seen it play out, actually, there was an article uh, last month in Politico about French and German press publishers that are disappointed in Microsoft's actual negotiations. Uh, then maybe they're not quite living up to the promises they made in terms of paying publishers for using uh, news or sending them traffic. So, you know, obviously they're playing the game. They have this experience in antitrust, they know which buttons to press and they have uh, relationships with antitrust enforcers because of their own uh, many antitrust troubles. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising. I mean, it's it's smart for a company to do this kind of thing. But I, I wish it were, you know, understood more generally in the public as, uh, you know, at least partially self-interested and not just entirely sort of a benevolent principled uh, motivation. Right, right. I think here I share more of your cynicism. I think in the, the App Store battle, they're, they're more on the right side. And even, even modern developments like web apps, I mean, remain inferior, second best. So I don't think that takes away their, their concerns that are to some extent genuine. On the publishers versus platform case where they took the, the publishers and including News Corp side, yeah, that that's starting to look more more cynical. Obviously, they have their search engine that isn't particularly popular, and they want to position themselves differently, at least in some respect. And that's then you know paying publishers in line with this, also in my opinion, ill-conceived law. Um, so, so on that point, you know, I think think we agree that yeah, you know, the the cost of doing that really really outweighs you know the, the benefits to the public. There's I don't think um, we're getting a lot further 
with such interventions. But we might be seeing more of Microsoft sort of battling against Google and other players in their in their big tech space, because for, for a long time, they had actually a, a truce, uh, a six-year truce, where they, they had essentially a, um, a ceasefire between the two companies, mutually agreeing not to fuel legal lobbying efforts against one another. Um, you know, so that ended in, in shows of respect and sort of uh, subdued criticism, if any criticism. But um, now that has ended, sort of the, the gloves are off and we might see more sort of these these are proxy fights really um, in the big tech space. Yeah, it is. You know, Microsoft has successfully pivoted their business and, and are still one of the largest companies in the world. And they're increasingly getting into digital advertising as well in direct competition with Google and Facebook and others. And, you know, they have their own social network, LinkedIn. So there are increasing overlaps between the big tech companies, which necessarily spill over into the policy arena and to lobbying. I think there was an article by The Economist not so long ago that that also posited and provided some numbers on how uh, big tech companies are increasingly at odds. And, you know, they are worthy of being in this uh, GAFAM acronym. They have a significant lead in some markets and market segments, and they have a wide range of services that they can bundle and continue to do uh, together. And their forays into digital advertising as well. So it's not surprising that they are again or still, uh, you know, under under some degree of scrutiny. Yeah, yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, Microsoft's days of antitrust uh, warfare aren't over, um, not only as a as a complainant, but certainly, again, at some point as a defendant, um, unless their redemption truly lasts. But, um, you know, the first hints of, of new cases already starting to appear. So this this won't be the last word on it. And it won't be our last word on it either. So looking forward to those cases and investigations and more things for us to comment on, eh? Definitely. There's going to be another episode with Microsoft in the title at some point. But um, <laughs> yeah, let's leave it at that for now. Uh, okay, it's been a pleasure again and see everyone next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.